Matthew chapter 5. Let's go to Matthew chapter 5. If you would with me this morning, we're going to finish the final beatitude. And so we're going to be in verse 10 of Matthew 5. And Jesus expounds on this eighth and final beatitude in the following couple of verses. So we'll be doing verses 10 through 12 this morning. The transition from verse 9 to verse 10, or beatitude number 7 to beatitude number 8, if you will, is a little bit rattling if you don't recognize why it's happening. It's rattling because, as many of you will remember, we studied blessed are the peacemakers last week, and now we're going to move to blessed are those who are persecuted. And it doesn't really sound like those things would be congruent unless you've lived five minutes of life in this world, and you know that being a peacemaker is going to bring you persecution. You know that this is something that's not going to be easy to do, and we talked about that a bit last week. But last week, intentionally, I I avoided placing the focus of our time on what can be called one-sided peacemaking. And and the reason why I didn't want to focus on that is because I wanted to focus on um, our call to be peacemakers in the same way that Jesus is a peacemaker, in that he laid his life down, he shed his blood for us, and so Jesus made peace by the blood he shed on the cross. That's how Jesus makes peace with us. We lay our lives down. That's how we make peace with others. We deny self. We talked about that last week. But we didn't really address what it looks like when people don't want to be at peace with us. And I'm sure none of you have ever experienced that in life where you actually genuinely wanted to have a peaceful relationship with somebody and they weren't having it. They weren't going to have any part of it. So this week, as we transition into chapter, into verse 10, excuse me, I think that we have to remember by way of introduction to the eighth and final beatitude that some people will not be willing to be at peace with us and some exclusively because we belong to Jesus. Some will exclusively not want to be at peace with us because of our relationship with Jesus. And that's to be expected. That shouldn't be shocking in any way. Now, Paul speaking to the the situation or the subject of Christian ethics in Romans chapter 12 said this, and this is important to remember as well. He says it perfectly. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Don't you like the way Paul actually qualifies that statement? He goes, if it's possible, then be at peace with people. If you can, do it. The implication is obvious, I think. Some will decidedly choose to not be at peace with us. And so we're left in this situation that will baffle us a lot of times as believers relationally. Not all attempts at reconciliation succeed, and that's shocking. Even when you put your best effort into it or or a God-honoring heart behind it, indeed, some are going to take the initiative to oppose us, in particular, to revile and slander us. Not just to say, I don't agree with this person, but they're not going to be quiet about it either. They're going to talk about it. They're going to slander. They're going to revile. Now, Paul goes on in Romans 12 to tell us how to handle people that position themselves in that way. And this is fascinating to me because a lot of times that's the part that we struggle with the most. It's not necessarily that we're that shocked when people say bad things. Sometimes it can be shocking, but it's that Paul goes on in Romans 12 and says, don't avenge yourself. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. Don't be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. In other words, don't fight fire with fire. Don't play the game the way they're playing it. Do things the Lord's way. Now, this is where it gets difficult. This is where this idea becomes really hard to apply to our lives because what's the first thing you want to do when somebody smacks you? You don't want to turn the other cheek. Or we have the attitude of a pastor that actually said this in in an interview I was reading who said you only have two cheeks. 
What's the implication? Oh, I only have to turn twice and then I'm fighting back. Is that what Jesus was getting at? Isn't that Peter's heart? And he goes, how many times should I forgive my brother? Seven, right? Jesus says, no, 70 times. Like, all right, 490. When I hit 489, you're in trouble because I'm one away from being able to smack you for it. And I'm keeping track. You know, it's that cryptic scene of the movie where it's dark in the dungeon. They pull back the sheet and there's all these scratch marks on the wall. (laughs) You know, like that's not the heart or the attitude behind it. And you're chuckling, but we think like this. If they do this to me one more time, that's, that's not the attitude of Jesus. The Christ-like work of peacemaking is not only to die to self. It's not only to lay your life down, but it's recognizing that that's not going to be received very well. In fact, in a lot of ways, it's going to offend people. We're told that we should expect it to be this way. And here in the final beatitude, Jesus not only reveals what we ought to expect regarding persecution, he also reveals why suffering validates our identity in him. Why suffering and being persecuted validates that we are in Christ because we should be sharing in his sufferings. And not only that, we should be able to rejoice and be glad when these things happen. Now, we'll get to that in a minute because... I'm terrible at that. Look at Matthew chapter 5 with me, if you would. Let's look at our text. Verses 10 through 12, the final beatitude. Jesus says this. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. It's it's important, you guys, that we recognize that those who are persecuted because of righteousness are blessed. That was not by accident. It's not by accident that he says, when you're persecuted because of righteousness, you're blessed. Righteousness here is not defined as, well, I'm in the right and they're in the wrong. Right? It's not self-righteousness. It's God-righteousness. It's God-rightness, if you want to be really specific about it. If I'm being persecuted because I think that I'm right and everyone else is wrong, that's not being persecuted for God's righteousness. That's being persecuted for my own attitude, right? We need to be persecuted for the right reasons. And you're like, we need to be persecuted? Yes, we must be. We must be. I have to be disliked. It's funny. It's like the opposite in reality for us, isn't it? I must be liked. We have that attitude. Everyone must like me. Why? Because then I feel good about myself. Isn't that the essence of selfishness? If I have to feel good about myself, what am I focused on? I'm not focused on bringing honor to God. I'm trying to bring honor to me. I'm trying to make something of myself. Righteousness here is not defined as self-rightness, but God's rightness. So being made fun of because you're still rocking that 80s hairdo doesn't qualify. And by the way, rock on. I mean, like, keep going, but that's not real persecution. When it's because of righteousness that we're persecuted, then we're blessed, and it's then that we're identified as those to whom the kingdom of heaven belongs. Now, notice the first beatitude. You can just look up a little bit, or maybe you might have to turn a page, but the first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, carries the same 
blessing after it. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Here in verse 10, the same thing. There's bookends for the Beatitudes that give the same blessing. The kingdom of heaven belongs to these people. They share the same reward. The, the first or this beatitude here in verse 10 serves as a test for all the beatitudes. Uh, just as a person must be poor in spirit to enter the kingdom, so will this person be persecuted for righteousness if he is to enter the kingdom. Not only do we have to have poverty of spirit that recognizes that I need to be saved by the Lord, but I also must go through this persecution in order to enter into this because it's going to come for those who are trusting in Christ. It's going to come for those. You guys, persecution is simply the clash between two irreconcilable value systems. It's the clash between two irreconcilable value systems. I like the way that was said by a writer because what that puts me in perspective of, this is two viewpoints or two people going in opposite directions. If I am being Christ-like, that means that I'm going against the flow of the world. And a teacher of mine in Bible college once said, you know what, you know you're not going the enemy's direction when you meet him head on. If you're meeting the enemy face to face, if you're going head to head with him, you're doing the right thing. You know, lots of people will look at Job probably and say, what did Job do wrong? No, no, no. What did Job do right? Job was doing things right and Satan was like, let me test this guy. And God said, are you ready, Christian? Okay. He gave him parameters, but he allowed him to. Now that should cause us to stop and pause and consider, is God going to do that to me? And if he does, will I trust him? Will I trust him if he allows me to go through something like this? Maybe God's allowing you to go through something right now, just like Job, and you're kicking against it because you don't feel like you deserve it. I did nothing to deserve this. Neither did Job. I mean, even his wife didn't like him. Even at the end, she's like, dude, just curse God and die already. It's in the Bible. Job had it pretty bad. You guys, if we're not clashing with the value system of the world, we're not being salt. We're not being light. Do you know what the next thing Jesus is going to talk about here in the Sermon on the Mount? You can peek at it. Verse 13 next week. Believers should be salt and light. Because it should be in congruence with this idea of being persecuted. We should be meeting resistance in the world. If we're living our lives in obedience to the righteousness of God, we're told over again to expect persecution for our righteousness. Jesus warned his disciples, John chapter 15. You'll probably be familiar with this. Verses 18 through 20 says this. If the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. By the way, Christian, if you're feeling down about your week, remember that. Remember that. This is awful. People are treating me terribly. They did it to Jesus. Do you realize that there is comfort in that? There is amazing comfort in knowing that what you're going through, he went through worse for you to save you and that you are having fellowship because of it and you're suffering. So instead of pulling away, lean in. Lean into what he's doing and recognize that you are having fellowship in a very special way through that suffering. Sorry, I didn't mean to sermonize over that. Verse 19, John 15, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Church, are we really concerned about what the world thinks of us? Now, I'm not saying we're giving them reason to hate us, 
on purpose. What I'm saying is this. Are we concerned about what people think when we should only be concerned about what God thinks? We should only be concerned about walking in obedience to him because that is being salt and light. Now, recognize this. We're still trying to be at peace with men. We're still trying as much as it depends upon us. But I cannot get caught up in this idea that the world should love me or think I'm cool or think that I should be more accepted in society than I am. If the world is going the devil's way, I want to meet them head on. Now, I want to not fight against them. I want to call them to walk with me. Amen? We want these people to get saved. But recognize this. If you were of the world, Jesus says, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Remember the word I spoke to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. If they persecuted Jesus, they're going to persecute us. We should expect it. Promises of God. Right? The promises of God that no one likes to talk about. That no one wants to deal with. Every single one of us is promised persecution in Christ Jesus. And it's a good thing. It's a good thing if we experience it because of righteousness. Persecution is a token of genuineness. And the following is important. We should not be surprised if anti-Christian hostility increases. We should be surprised if it doesn't and be alarmed if it doesn't. Because if it's not happening, then we're not standing apart. We're not being sanctified. We're not truly serving him. We blend in enough to not receive any kind of persecution. Before moving on to Jesus' expansion of this beatitude in verses 11 and 12, we need to be clear on the following. Make certain that you are experiencing persecution because of righteousness and not because of you. This is where examination of heart is essential. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, Peter writes, If you are ridiculed for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Where do you think he got that? He was probably there for the Sermon on the Mount, right? So he's sitting there listening like, yeah, oh yeah. Now he's writing his letter. If you're ridiculed for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Let none of you, however, look at verse 15. It's on the screen. Let none of you suffer as a murderer. I really hope that none of us are suffering as murderers in here right now. And, and a lot of times we're like, oh, well, I'm not a murderer. I haven't killed anybody. We'll get into that further in the Sermon on the Mount. But let's just say, okay, let none of you suffer as a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Mm, Not feeling so good. He says, don't suffer because of those things. He says, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in having that name. In other words, don't shrink away from being called someone who belongs to Jesus. Stand tall in that and say, because of him, I can stand because he has purified me. But church... When we see the list of things that we shouldn't suffer as, many times we call it persecution, we call it suffering for Christ, but we're suffering because of Mike. Well, not me, but you know your name. Like, you're suffering because of self. And so this is convicting for me. I have to sit and look at my own life and and, and think these things through and say, Lord, am I suffering because I have done something? Or am I suffering for walking in obedience to you? And we need to do that individually, church. We need to go through and do that work of self-examination because we can't say we're being persecuted for righteousness when we're being persecuted for self. 
It's so important that we suffer persecution for the sake of Christ and that we repent of sin for which we suffer the consequences. If I'm suffering the consequences of my sin, repentance is in order. If I'm suffering as a consequence of being a follower of Jesus, rejoicing is in order. Probably not what you thought was coming there, right? How often do you rejoice because someone harasses you for being a Christian? Yippee. You know, are you really feeling that good about it? You should. I should. I should be glad and rejoice. We don't reflect Jesus. Church, please hear me. We don't reflect Jesus when we're persecuted because of our own sin. If you are suffering persecution because you have sinned, you're not reflecting Christ. We reflect Jesus when we're persecuted for the same reason that he was. I reflect Jesus when I'm being persecuted for the reasons that he was. Now look at this. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 20 through 24. For what credit is there if when you do wrong and are beaten, you endure it? He's like, what credit is there if you did something wrong and you got what you deserved for it? That's what he's saying. But when you do what is good and suffer, if you endure it, this brings favor with God. Um, what's the thing that we hate? Like, I don't know about you guys, that, that we hate so much in our lives, at least for me, I hate being accused of something I didn't do. I hate it. My, my sister is actually in the house this morning, and she knows this about me. As a child, I would freak out when I would get... And that's usually how my mom knew I didn't do it because I would lose it. Like, how dare you accuse me of doing something I didn't do? Oh. If only I'd read first Peter two twenty and understood it. But when you do what is good and suffer, if you endure it, this brings favor with God. This doesn't mean we don't care about justice. It means I don't require justice in order to rejoice in Christ. Did you hear that? I do not require justice to rejoice and be glad in Jesus. I can just be glad so long as I'm walking in obedience to him and I can take my lumps and be okay with it and be all right with it for notice this. You're going to hate it. Are you ready church? I'm not about to tell you you're going to live your best life now. First Peter two verse 21 says for you were called to this. What? Because Christ also suffered for you. He says, because what's the this about? The prior verse. I'm not trying to vacillate here. I'm just really trying to get you guys to get this. When you do what is good and suffer, if you endure, it brings favor with God. You are called to that. I'm called to that. If that's my calling, what is going on in my head most of the time? When I get frustrated or I get burned out or I get sick of it, I can't handle it. I'm sick of it. What are you sick of? Mistreatment. I didn't do anything wrong. Well, you're called to that, bro. Be good Christian people and very gently and lovingly go up to each other and be like, but you're called to this. <laughs> it's okay. Then duck and then tell them to not strike you. But like you understand like this is what we're called to. I was called to suffer because Christ suffered for me. He left me an example. Look at the text, verse 21, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Peter says you're supposed to be following in the footsteps of Jesus through suffering unjustly. 
Stop thinking that you're owed a just response from the world and start recognizing that you've been given grace in Jesus Christ. Amen? That is the truth. You have been, been given grace and mercy in Jesus Christ. We don't need the world to give us a just response. Do we call it unjust when it's unjust? Sure. We can speak to that. But when they act evil, why are we so surprised? When the world is wicked and evil and following after their father, the devil, why are we so surprised? Jesus didn't mince words about this with the Pharisees. They're like, we are the sons of Abraham. He's like, no, you're not. They're like, no, we're the sons of God. He's like, no, you're, your fa- you're the children of your father who is Satan. If you want to offend people, give that a shot. Right now, I wouldn't recommend doing it with the wrong heart, but Jesus told them truthfully, you are of your father, the devil. How much persecution did he suffer for it? They killed him for it, even though he was right. He let them kill him for it, even though he was right. Are you catching my drift? You should follow in his steps, Peter says in 1 Peter 2, verse 22, he did not commit sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. Notice this, all of this falls under, he left you an example, we should do this as well. Okay, so this is the example for Christians. These are things that we should underline our Bible and say, okay, I need to exemplify these things in my life to reflect Jesus. He didn't commit sin. (sighs) Check. No deceit was found in his mouth. Hmm. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. When he was insulted, he didn't threaten. He entrusted himself to God and recognized that God is the one who decides. God is the one who has called us. And as Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, he's like, don't worry about men. They can just kill your body. And trust yourself to God because he's the one that throws body and soul into hell. And trust yourself to God. Give yourself to God. Worship God. He himself, speaking of Christ in verse 24, I know it's taken me forever. I apologize. It's because I know there's not a second service. (laughs) You're all in for it. You guys, he himself, verse 24, bore our sins in his body on the tree. He bore our sins in himself so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. Never forget, church, by his wounds you have been healed. That's what empowers us to endure being treated unjustly, to suffer righteousness on his account, to suffer for righteousness. That is a detailed description of how we're to suffer persecution, church. Jesus gave us the ultimate example. I encourage you when you are suffering and you have self-examined and looked at your life and said, I, I, I am not in sin here. I'm suffering because I'm doing what God has told me to do. Find comfort in the words of 1 Peter chapter 2. You are doing what God has called you to do. You are living according to what he has called you to live. And when we do, we're revealing the Holy Spirit and power glory of God through our lives And to such as these, the kingdom of heaven belongs. These are the ones to whom the kingdom of heaven has been entrusted. Now, Jesus expounds more. Verse 11. Don't worry, I won't take as long. You're blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Jesus makes clear that persecution will not be limited to physical attack, although it might. He says this, people are going to talk smack about you. 
That's in my modern version. People are going to talk smack about you. They're going to say things about you that aren't fair or even true. It's going to include insults and open malice towards anyone who follows Christ. Now, maybe some of us are suffering physically for the name of Jesus, but it's much more likely that the majority of us are suffering persecution in our current society in this way. Insults falsely being spoken evil of because of Christ. We're being insulted because we follow Jesus or because we stand up for something that he stood up for or we walk in obedience to his word and society doesn't like that very much. Now, how we do it should have the heart of Christ, but we still have to stand in his truth, right? We still have to stand in what's right. Now, what we're going to do when we're in this situation, church, will decide how we handle what people say about us. will decide how well we're reflecting him. And how they see him in us, whether they like it or not. And we have to be accurate examples of him, whether they receive that or not. What's to be done when people are lashing out against us because we love God? When they're calling our kids names and making fun of them because they read their Bible? When they send emails or messages to you, cursing you and the God that you serve or threaten you? Doesn't Jesus tell us what to do? He does. Look at verse 12. Be glad and rejoice. I'm not saying this tongue in cheek. Okay. I'm not like, I'm not like, I want to be real with you guys. This is hard. This is hard. And it is only possible if we live in the spirit, if we are empowered by the Holy Spirit, because I believe it is impossible for us Scripturally, I believe this. It is impossible for us in our flesh to do this, to rejoice and be glad when people say all manner of things, all kinds of evil against us. It is hard to take. Jesus tells us what to do when people threaten. Through words or deeds, be glad and rejoice. Why? Because your reward is great in heaven. He shifts our perspective from this life because it's just worth it, okay? Just do it. I mean, Jesus didn't wear Nikes, right? So it seems just do it. That's not it. What he's saying is, here's why you need to have a heavenly perspective and these things matter in heaven. These issues matter in heaven. What you do here does echo in heaven and it represents the Father and you need to do that well because you bear the name of Christ. And so you should be glad and you should rejoice. And we see this in the church early on. Doesn't it baffle you in Acts when they get beaten and they come back? Ah, we got whooped. Most of the time, like, you would not believe who cut me off in traffic today. They had a transform sticker on their car. Right? We get all worked up because we're like, what in the world? You would not. Old lady just rammed into my heel at Costco. You would not. uh, It's over. It's over. I'm never going back. The lady gave me one sample. Now we don't get any samples. They just show it to you. I'm surprised they're not like cooking that stuff up with a little fan. Oh, don't you wish you could taste it? <laughs> COVID. You guys, we, I'm sorry. That's been pent up for a while. You guys, you understand the persecution is real, okay? I used to go to Costco and shop for lunch and I can't anymore. 
All right, I'm done. Seriously, though, be glad and rejoice because it's a heavenly perspective. Church, persecution is never something sought out by a Christian. Can I say that? We're not looking for the trouble. We're not looking for this. It's the byproduct of seeking first the kingdom of God rather than the privileges of the world. And a lot of times we're shocked because like, I thought this is what God wanted me to do. And now I'm suffering for it. It's like all part of the plan. It's in the contract. I have a contract. Just read the Bible. So when the privileges of the world are taken away, our response reveals just how resolute we've been at seeking first the kingdom of God. When the privileges of life are taken away from us, we are shown what's really going on inside in our character. We're shown Christians as believers what's going on inside when my privileges are taken away, when my freedoms are taken away. Do I love my freedoms? Yeah, absolutely. I love Jesus more. And I don't need freedom if I have Jesus. You're like, oh, you don't understand what that means. Yeah, I do. I think it means that when God calls a man, he bids him to come and die. And that I need to be ready to die, just like someone like Bonhoeffer had to. That I need to be ready to make the ultimate sacrifice. That I need to be ready to lay my life down if need be. That I should be denying myself and taking up my cross, think Romans, and following him. Don't let your Christianity bleed into other things. Keep your commitment to Jesus pure and focused. I'm committed to Christ. I'm committed to the Lord, and I'm going to walk with him through this, and we will be persecuted. Don't you love Jesus' example? People are like, I don't like that. Neither do I. I don't like the comparison he gives. Look at the comparison at the end of verse 12. For that's how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. More good news. How did they treat the prophets? Pretty bad. Pretty bad. Isaiah was sawn in half. Jeremiah was thrown in a well. Daniel was thrown into a lion's den. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown in a furnace. Should we go on? They tortured them. They murdered them. You're like, ew, Mike, you're not making anyone want to be a Christian. No, actually, I'm inspiring every Christian in the room. Why? Because Jesus is. If he says theirs is the kingdom of heaven, and if he says this, that you should rejoice and be glad because your reward is great in heaven, we should be inspired, not afraid, when we're compared to the prophets. Amen? We should be inspired by that. I'm ready to lay my life down. I'm ready to do whatever it takes. Were those guys perfect? No. Look at Elijah. Elijah's like the representative of the prophets in the Old Testament. He appeared to Jesus with Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration. Elijah was a big dog, so to speak. But like, what did Elijah do when Jezebel's like, that's it, I'm going to kill you. I got to get out of here. You know, and he runs. Elijah didn't always do it perfect. We're going to struggle, but you recognize that we have to continue to trust the Lord. And when God says, why are you here? Uh, she's going to kill me. He's like, go back. Oh, okay. And he goes back, right? Now the Lord had other things to say in that conversation with Elijah at the mountain. But in the end, he's like, go back. Don't run away. Don't hide. And what did Elijah do? By the way, Christian, sorry, just real, just real quick. Something that Elijah does that we often do. I'm all alone in this. Poor me. 
No one else is walking the Christian walk. No one else is living the Christian life. No one else is suffering like I am. And God's like, there's like 8,000 others. He's like, seriously, there are so many other prophets. There are so many others who have not bowed a knee to Baal. And he's like, stop being a martyr, so to speak, and go back and fulfill your calling. Go do what God has called you to do. Not long ago, we'll go back to the example of Daniel. We were studying the book of Daniel in chapter 6 when the administrators and the satraps and all those guys who were the leaders that King Darius had put in charge, member of his kingdom when the Medo-Persians took over, they're looking for ways to discredit and do away with Daniel because he was too good at his job. He had too much wisdom. He had too much insight. And so they're trying to find a way to bring an accusation against him because Daniel was a blameless man in all ways. And they realize the only way we're getting any dirt on Daniel is if we, dirt on Daniel, that should be a band name. We, any, the only way we're going to get a dirt, get dirt on Daniel is if we accuse him of something that has to do with his God, right? That's the only way we're going to be able to do this. And you remember the story. They outlaw prayer and petition to anyone but King Darius for 30 days. And what does Daniel do? Daniel chapter 6, verse 10. When Daniel learned that the document had been signed, he went into his house. The windows in his upstairs room opened towards Jerusalem. And three times a day, he got down on his knees, prayed, and gave thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Giving thanks, being glad, rejoicing, even though... He knew exactly what was at stake. Daniel is the example, one of these prophets that we as Christians are compared to. And if you want to know how we should respond to what goes on in our world today, this is how. Pray. Seek the face of the Lord and don't compromise. Worked out pretty well for Daniel. Maybe it'll end in our death. Maybe God will deliver us miraculously and that'll be a testimony. But either way, God will be glorified. We want God to be glorified in his church. Daniel trusted God to be his defense. He considered the reward in heaven and the promises of God to hold insurmountable value over anything that could be offered here on this earth, and so should we. Jesus says we're blessed when we're persecuted for his sake. And Paul told the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18, Therefore, We do not give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. Did you catch that? Even though our outer person is being destroyed, inside we are being renewed day by day for our momentary light affliction. This is Paul writing. Do you remember all that he went through? He says this momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Church, that's our future. That's our hope. Don't lose heart. Suffering is sanctifying. It's making something great of us even as it makes us small. Suffering is sanctifying because it's making something great of us even though it's making us small. How does that work? John the Baptist. He must increase and I must decrease. And in the process, Christ is glorified and I am saved from my sin and will spend an eternity with God. Amen.
Lord, as we consider these words and as we go to a time to worship, Lord, may our reliance be upon you, our trust and our hope, Lord, that we would hold fast to nothing in this world that is not worthy of our our worship. And Jesus, I just pray that your church would be sanctified in your truth. As you prayed over your disciples, Lord, we, we recognize we are your followers, we are your disciples. And Lord, we just want that prayed over us. We thank you that that has been prayed over us as well. Would you sanctify us in your truth, O oh God, and your word is truth. And so, Lord, as we take a moment and we quietly consider before we worship, Lord, I pray that you would give us the opportunity to examine our hearts to know, Lord, am I being persecuted because of me? Am I suffering because I'm in sin? And Lord, I pray that we would repent of things that we need to repent of. And Lord, that if we recognize that we're being persecuted, Christ, for your sake, Jesus, our Savior, because of what you've done in our lives, that we're suffering, may we see that as fellowship with you. And would you encourage us and fill us and reveal that joy that can be found, that rejoicing and that gladness of heart that can be found in knowing that we're suffering for the name. Let's take a moment, church, with our heads bowed, our eyes closed. Let's just consider and examine, and then we'll worship.